Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. We are like dwarfs sitting on the shoulders of giants. We see more and things that are more distant than they did. Not because our sight is superior or because we are taller than they, but because they raise us up and by their great stature add to ours. John of Salisbury, Metalogicon 1159. That beautiful piece of poetry was taken directly from the website belonging to our guest this week, Heather Taylor, who has set herself the incredible task of rowing across the Pacific Ocean from California to Hawaii. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60. I'm joined by my co-host, Tim. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tim. Heather is a Canadian. She grew up in Ontario in Canada and uh, discovered a love of water at a very early age, initially rowing on very still, flat, small bodies of water, um, which has sown the seed for her, her current passion, which is to, to tackle this incredible um, uh, endeavour. She's an engineer with a PhD um, and came to Australia some years back, Ben. And she currently works in the field of risk management, which will have a higher level of relevance in this particular challenge. So we're going to talk to Heather about this challenge, about why she would, on earth, would she think of doing this, how she's going to go about it, some of the kit, which is fascinating in itself, and importantly, how she's going to keep going that little further on this 4,000-kilometre trek. Tim, what's the furthest you've ever driven in a car? 5,000 kilometres? <laughs> Not in one day. <laughs> Puts it into perspective. Mm. So 120 days of rations, 4,000 kilometres ahead of her. Let's get on with the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 and into our second season. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tim. G'day, Ben. Hey, Tim. And we're joined in the studio today with Heather Taylor. Heather, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. For our listeners, could you please bring us up to speed? What got you here to this studio today? Tell us a bit about your background and you know, why we're talking. Uh, so I think probably the reason I'm here is um, doing a ocean rowing trip, mm -hmm. going to go from California to Hawaii um, in a few months, which is coming up quite quickly. Um, these guys emailed me from my perspective out of the blue um, and asked if I wanted to come and have a chat. Actually, it was our talent team that found you. Oh, you have a secret, ta secret talent team. Secret talent team <laughs> that identifies the top talent that might be hidden away yeah, doing yeah. extraordinary things. People mm. going a, a little further. That's right. Mm. So, And prior to that, what, what got you into ocean rowing and, and a bit about uh, your background? So I'm a river rower. Mm -hmm. I did my first year of rowing in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then through university, it had one year of competitive rowing, and then the rest of it just out in the single in summer. Okay. Fun. And high school whereabouts? Uh, this was in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Stovall, Ontario. And so it was just the Durham Rowing Club. Yep. Which is about half an hour from my house. And so you got sick of rowing on very flat, still bodies of water and thought you'd take it out into the organ. I didn't know you could actually ocean row. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went to the Ocean Film Festival. Mm -hmm. um, and came across a documentary about four British women who had rowed in the Atlantic race. And that was the first time I even heard you could row across an ocean. And I was like, oh, because you watch the adventure 
um, films. And you're like, crazy people yep. wouldn't do that, but cool. Um, and that was one at the end of the movie. I was like, well, I'll file that away. Maybe that's something I could do one day. Um, and then probably three months later, I read an article about a lady who had been gotten to, I think, the top selection of NASA. And they were like, she rode 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. And I was like, it's the same thing. So I started researching the race and then um, kind of went from there. And so could you tell us a bit about the race and its history? Um, so that's the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic race. Mm-hmm. Um, that They started doing it, I think, in 2006. A couple of people who had done the Atlantic before, a few people who had done it before. And then it started to become maybe biannual, and now it's an annual race. Mm-hmm. So that's originally what I was intending to do. Um, I had a teammate at the time, and then eventually he pulled out, and that kind of shut everything down for mm-hmm. a good 10, 11 months. Um, and then finally convinced a friend to do it, and that sort of rebooted the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we'd switched oceans just with the timing of when the race was. Um, and then eventually, um, after a few months, her study got in the way, so she mm. pulled out, and so I was left on my own thinking, do I keep going? And decided to, so I'll be doing it on my own. But it was never intentional. <laughs> so, so talk to us about the challenge you've set for yourself. California to Hawaii, how far is that? Uh, it's about 4,000 kilometres or 250, sorry, 2,500 miles. Mm. I assume that's directly as the Yeah, it's flies. the... the call it the run line mm. sailors will call it yeah so your your great circle route if you drew it on the globe yeah mm-hmm. so it'll probably end up being an extra 200 miles mm-hmm. yeah in addition to that given navigational errors sea swell winds oh probably even currents, a bit more than that because <laughs> 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 you have to drop down and um drop south from where i'm intending on leaving to catch the trade winds which speed it up even though you add a bit more distance um within it and in terms of that decision to go solo, that sounds like a pretty epic, like that's a step change, isn't it? Like the the endeavour in itself is yeah. incredible, mind-blowing uh, in a pair, but then going yourself, yeah. not only the physical aspect of doubling the actual rowing you need to mm. do, but, but also the mental aspect of that solitude. Was that a massive step for you to make? I think when I first looked into the Atlantic race, you kind of scroll through all the current crews that are going to do it and you... You kind of had this special look at the soloists of like these are these are special people. Yeah. Um, either a bit crazy or like oh, all the power to you. Um, and that was actually one of the things when I was first doing it with um, uh, the first bit of teammate was we kind of went through. I have a risk management background, so we did a risk assessment of our row, um, and the conclusion of everything was that. Um, he would go alone, but I I didn't want to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's eventually how it's turned out, though. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just been a slow process of realising what's involved in it. And also, it is, it's easier to organise on your own, I'm yeah. trying to take in. So yeah. that probably considered it. But I also had almost a year and a half to mull over what I was getting into. Yeah. So I think it wasn't so much a... A decision versus a slow coming to realize yeah. that. Mm. And out of interest, how how much uh, did the formal sort of risk assessment process play in your decision? Did that help you come to grips with you know what are the no kidding risks and and help you make the decision, or was it more um, of a gut intuition thing? In terms of doing it, doing it was a gut intuition, and mm. then I think going through all the the possible options of when things could go wrong or what would sort of shut down the project. 
it's probably just helpful to put them down on paper yeah, to say, okay, well, you know, what would prevent you from doing it? You know, if your parents ended up having an accident and they were disabled, like that's the kind of thing of like, what would stop you from doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, versus if one person gets injured, what do you do? Those types of yeah, decisions yeah. that you if at least thought about what could happen beforehand. Mm. So the risk assessment, if you truly risk assess this likelihood times consequence, you'd never undertake the journey. I mean, wouldn't. the likelihood <laughs> of an incident is probably extreme, oh, I guess. very likely, uh, certain. Probably maybe likely. Likely. And the I consequences. I haven't done it, done it to that level of detail. This is just okay. <laughs> yeah, Tim, you shut know, up, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't well, everyone knows that risk it. management breaks down well, into two parts, likelihood yeah. times consequence. Yes. And both of those things yeah. for you yeah. could have catastrophic circumstances. Yeah. I think that's it. Like acknowledging that it could, there has been deaths at sea, but there's mm-hmm. been deaths in cars as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think taking, it's probably what is a situation that could happen and what are the steps that lead to that that type of situation. So mm. um, I've talked to a lot of crews and tried to figure out where failures have come in or, you know, the, if you're going statistically, 66% of the rows are successful, mm-hmm. which means a third don't finish. And it doesn't mean that they've died. It just means that they, um, something stopped them from actually completing their row. Some technology has gone wrong or they've gotten out mm. there and they realize, actually, this is not what I want to do. So the, the route that I'm doing um, has probably a lower success rate for a solo rower. Mm-hmm. Um, so recorded, there's been about 15 people who've tried to do it and only six have succeeded. Mm-hmm. So statistically, that's quite low. Um, and there's a few more that you find out have tried as well, but you just didn't know about them. So is that a deliberate decision that you made to row that route that has a lower probability of success? Uh, or well, was it's, it the probability increases once you have two or four people. Right. It's just for a solo rower. The, getting off the coast of California is quite difficult mm-hmm. because of the wind conditions and the current. So the wind is kind of coming at you from the northwest and it's pushing you back into shore and then the current's pulling you south. So, you know, if you, if you stop rowing, you'd end up in Mexico. Mm. Um, so you can end up getting, not being able to get off. And that's been one of the, the things that have made it harder. Whereas in the Atlantic, if you kind of like get in your boat mm. and eventually you'll get there with, <laughs> if you'd have eaten row, you'd get there. <laughs> if you saw the guy who um, was in his barrel, I guess, he floated across the Atlantic. He arrived last year. Right. I have to look at that guy. Yeah. Yep. So a Frenchman. Mm-hmm. He did it. Um, and eventually he got there. He didn't do anything. <laughs> like a, a sort of human message in a bottle yes, that just pretty much. drifted mm, across. Yeah. Mm. And so give us some idea of the relative scale. You said you've, you've got to kind of go hard from the, the initial yeah. point to, to get or break the current and the wind mm-hmm. um, out of California. Are we talking, you know, sprint for 30 seconds? Are we no, talking- it'd be probably two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so two weeks and, and you should have cleared the, the worst of it and then the winds come and swing in behind you. So it's not as though you're you know, high cardio, it's, it's, a, it's a long, slow mm-hmm. endurance because that was one of my concerns. Um, when I did this uh, latest ocean, open ocean trip, that was the first one that I did, um, I got seasick for two days and that pretty much took me out. I mm-hmm. was able to do a bit of rowing, um, but the winds were in the right direction. So I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. I'll just have a rest day. Yep, yep. Because um, I was moving at the same pace anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a bit depressing. Um, so... I was quite concerned then whether or not I could physically actually, yeah. what happens if I get seasick and I get pushed back two days, I've gone. Mm. Um, and 
rather than you know having to push really hard, it's just a matter of keeping on going and perhaps making smart decisions about when to when to deploy the sea anchor, which is parachute anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, sit it out, wait till the winds change, even if it means maybe you've moved only three, actually rode three hours that day. At least you haven't lost ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that might be a way to tackle tackle doing that first bit. So you. So you've rode for two weeks and yeah. the lights of San Diego have just faded away. 4,000 kilometres plus your extra 200 plus more with all of the variables. Mm-hmm. How long will that take you in um, total time? Unknown. So the quickest someone's done it, I think, is 58 days. 58 days. And then the longest is 112. So the average ends up being about 84. So there's one woman who's done it and she did it in 99. So I'm acknowledging that I have less muscle than a, a guy probably would. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just don't know how long it'll take. Wind conditions make all the difference as well. So let's talk about how you actually move forward in this thing. Clearly you're rowing. Yeah. Are you allowed to have a sail? Is no, that part so you're not allowed to have a sail. Okay. Yeah. But there's some wind effect, positive Yeah, the boat or, or... itself, I, I like to describe it as a giant beach ball that mm-hmm. just sits there and the wind is... The wind is my enemy in um, here in Perth training mm-hmm. because once it gets over ten knots, you can't go into it, and fifteen knots, you can't steer it okay. properly. So when you're in the river, you're going to be hitting stuff. In the ocean, it's much less stressful because there's a lot less to hit, and you've got bigger distances. Um, so the wind does play a big part in in it. Yeah, um, and oh, sorry. Oh, if if you've got a headwind or a tailwind. It'll make a big difference. Yeah, positive or negative. Yeah. And what about the rowing? What's your um, sort of daily routine in terms of you're rowing 24 hours a day? I assume we're sleeping in there somewhere. Uh, so I haven't figured out exactly what I'll do. Um, if you were in a team of two or four, they usually end up doing two hours on, two hours off, and maybe slightly longer sessions in the e- nighttime so they can get a, a longer sleep. But I think some of the solo rowers have done it in uh, – Sort of they row all day and then sleep at night so you can actually get a decent sleep in it. Uh, you do need to be alert to what's happening, you know. Mm. Um, so from a sailing perspective, you'd never sleep all night. You always want to do your checks and stuff. Um, but then you're probably not exerting the same amount of energy you are for rowing. Uh, I think I'll probably take the approach of um, doing longer chunks because of the, the thing is if, if the wind isn't in your direction. You have to deploy the sea anchor, which is and take off the rudder. It's quite a lot of work to, yeah. I would say, like half an hour to set the boat up to stop and not be rowing for, if you're going to stop for more than two hours. So doing a long day and having a proper sleep is probably what I'll lean towards doing. But then if you have better conditions in the, at night, then row through the night and um, sleep through the day. Mm. So I think it, it'll it depend. I do need to set up a proper schedule, so I'm following it. But sure being flexible with that as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a morning person, so I'd much rather row to 2 a.m. and be able to sleep a bit longer once the sun comes up. And what are you going to do for 58 to 112 days? I mean, I assume you've got the complete first season of The Unforgiving 60 to listen to. I will, yes. (laughs) I need to to source my podcast, so that'll be at the top of the list. Sure, so there's podcasts in there. Yeah. What else? Music? Um, Music, but music, I think, can only get you so far. Uh-huh. Yeah, so music is quite fun when you're like when you're pumped or if it's a mellow state. But I found audiobooks to be the best yep. because time just goes by. And I'll admit, the Harry Potter series is what I basically listen to because <laughs> that's what I have on my phone. <laughs> um, so I've listened to all seven of them, and they're 120 hours, so mm. it's quite a long time. That gets you, yeah. And yeah. so because you have a story to focus on, 
and you're like, okay, oh look, the chapter ended, or I'll I'll listen till this point, and then I'll have a break. Um, yeah, you, you have download some classics like the Perfect Storm audio book, maybe not Moby Titanic, <laughs> <laughs> Robinson Crusoe. There's fantastic there's, there's some good stuff. There yeah. are some good yeah. ocean ones, maybe not the whale attacking you. Yeah. Yes. Key risk mitigation mm -hmm. is the boat. Yes. Describe the boat to us. Um, so the boat is oh, seven to eight meters long. And it's about two meters wide. There's a cabin. Actually, how long the cabin is? It's probably two meters, maybe two and a bit. Um, and that's where all the um, electronic equipment is, so the GPS, the radio, et cetera, and then um, sleeping quarters. So basically, it's just a open flat cabin with cushions on it, um, and then netting on the side of it. Um, the deck itself, because the boat I have, you can have two people on it. Um, there's two rowing positions. So I'll probably sit in the one that's closer to the stern of the boat because that's where the steering is for the rudder. So it's mm -hmm. just a little foot plate where you, you know, put your foot to the left and the boat will go left and right, etc. Um, and then at the front of the boat is another cabin, which is a storage one. It's maybe a meter squared size in terms of storage. Um, and then that's the end of the boat. And facilities on board, cooking? Uh, I'll have a camping stove, so a jet boil. Okay. That's and my cooking. <laughs> what about water and bathroom uh, So there's facilities? a desalinator on board, so I'm able to get water. Um, and my toilet will either be the ocean or a bucket. <laughs> and what about food? So you've got your jet boil stove, so the height of culinary preparation yes, equipment. Mm -hmm. what, what are you, how much are you going to take? Uh, Is there a risk of running out? And, and what are you going to take? I'll take dehydrated food, so mm -hmm. the, the camping, hiking food that you find, plus all the snacks and goodies as well to get you going mm -hmm. um and i'll take four months worth knowing that i could be out there for 120 days but um hopefully a lot less than that mm -hmm. yeah fishing or no fishing i'll attempt to fish i'm not very good at fishing now i haven't also organized getting a fishing pole or a mm. line or anything we've I got 58 to 102 days to get Good at fishing. It's true. Mm -hmm. my, I think my attempt at fishing will be sticking a line off the back and seeing if anything happens. I remember reading uh, the Contiki expedition, mm -hmm. Thor Heyerdahl, yeah. um, who I think was from South America on a raft, anyway, in the 50s or 60s. But he, he wonderful passages about the fishing and, and fish mm -hmm. getting attracted to the boat and yeah. you almost couldn't not catch a fish. So yeah. mm, there's Hopefully hope. that's the case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you tethered in when you're rowing? Yes. The so are... I'll have a... Um, I guess the highest level of life jacket you can have, but also it has the harness. And so there's a, a jack stay rope that I'm always attached to when I'm on deck. Uh, it's pie, I guess. Ideally, I'm not on deck when it happens. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you're getting breaking waves or probably like 30 knots, over 30 knots, you and this, the sea state would be matching that or mm. perhaps with a swell as well, I'd go inside. Okay. And put the sea anchor in. So that's probably actually where doing it solo, you need to be more conservative. You might take a few more um, risks if there's two of you mm -hmm. because you've got someone in case the odds of you going overboard aren't very high, but at least someone could yeah. could help you if something does go wrong. So you, you, But when you're on your own, just even injuries, that's the thing. And so if I had a wave come in and smashed mm. something, if I injure something particularly like my legs and arms and hands, that's going to do a lot of damage for my ability to then keep rowing. So I'll probably be more conservative. And is the boat self-writing? If it rolls over, will it 
Yes. Will it write itself? Okay, yes. so you just need to bide your time and wait for the boat to roll back yep. over. Mm-hmm. What's the weight of it? Um, all up, I think when everything's loaded, it ends up being 750 kg, and then when you add your ballast, it's 850. Okay, so there's going to be illness potentially, maybe even injury. How are you configured medically? Uh, so I'll take a significant um, medical kit, so a sort of a ship's level medical kit. So having the drugs all the way up to I can't feel anything because I'm nicely drugged up, <laughs> um, and then um, bandages and etc. So my mum is actually, she's a nurse and she was helping me go through a few things and she's like, well, I probably don't need the CPR thing. <laughs> Self-administer. <laughs> there are things that doing it on my own you just don't need. Um, Defibrillator. Yes. <laughs> I could get you going in the morning yeah. considering you're not a morning person. Yes. Pull out the defib. Yeah. And speaking of tech, what, what sort of tech are you taking? I assume there's some navigational and communication yes, so, stuff. Uh, so it's basically what you'd end up on a sailing yacht. So I've got the chart plotter, um, the HF radio, and then having portable battery-powered backups. So having a portable GPS, mm-hmm. portable radio, um, all of them of which you can somehow try and find a charge. And how do you actually navigate? Are you you're using a moving map-type technology to sort of plot your course and then steer against it? Or? Um, so I'll be probably plotting the route, what the perfect line would be, mm-hmm. but then largely influenced by weather routing. Mm-hmm. So the person who's weather routing me would say, okay, that's your waypoint based on the weather that's um, happening today. And then coming in the next few weeks, you need to be over here because the storm's going to be coming this direction mm-hmm. for four days. So means we'll avoid that and try and save yourself. Any old school backup? Do you have the Shackleton style sextant? I will that be you can having take? that. Right. Yeah. So I did learn how to celestial navigate, at least online. So I need to get my sextant um, and uh, start practicing with it. But the, the math to do it is um, fairly simple. Mm. Hand angles work too. Yeah, mm. celestial nav. Yep. Yes. If you, as long as you know your hand angles. Yeah, probably don't. Yep. And I, and I, in which I've case, got a compass. Or a not, not difficult to I work out. Up. Yes, I, I imagine they won't be too bad. Mm. Uh, in case of emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a satellite phone. Mm-hmm. That's my main, going to be my main mode of comms. comms. And then you've got all the stuff that someone can find you, but until they find you. Yeah. Um, there's the US Coast Guard is, is quite. Excellent at coming to find and save people, but mm-hmm. my goal is to not have to talk to them at all. In the what? unlikely event mm-hmm. of yes. an emergency. Yeah. And what about other road users? Uh, is this a shipping lane? Are there likely to be people who... Uh, there will be ships. I'm avoiding the shipping lanes mm-hmm. for at all possible. Yep. But there's... If you have a look at um, you know the global systems Ship, that let you r- yep. see every ship that's on the planet with a, a signal, there's a lot of ships and they're... They're not necessarily in straight lines. Um, they definitely go everywhere. Yeah. Um, so there could be rogue ships that are around, but I'll be aiming to avoid the large shipping containers. <laughs> yeah. um, and I do have a, a system. It's called AIS, Automated yes. Identification System, um, that will alert me. So that was actually one thing I was able to test in the last uh, row. The alarm came on and I you know, was laying down. Okay, what's happening you now? And pop my head out, where's the ship, where's the ship, where's the ship, mm-hmm. um, and see it pop up. And then um, it has that little terrifying line with the, the shipwreck symbol there. And you're like, <laughs> I think I'm clear because it didn't look like it was. Um, so, yeah, as long as um, the ship's not moving too fast. And as long as they've got it fitted and turned on. Which... Yes, which the big ships have yep. to legally. The little ships, not so much. Mm-hmm. But 
most people when you're going offshore these days, you'd have you'd have that just for your own personal safety. So unless I'm meeting pirates, um, I should be okay. Any chance of that? I don't think so. And what do we know about the weather in the sea state from um, California to Hawaii? In summer, you get a high developing, so it ends up being fairly consistent. But the the spring storms, you can get the frontal systems coming down California um, coast, and that's where in that sort of early two-week period, if you did have a front coming through, um, it could be pretty. Not so pretty. <laughs> I feel as though in some respects I've had exposure to higher winds than some people who train just because of the location mm. um, that we're in where it's very windy Always anyway. Windy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So that, that's been probably quite helpful for me in doing it. And what about wildlife? Have previous expeditions encountered Whales, sharks, turtles, dolphins? Uh, certainly whales. I know one who described a dolphin stampede. So I think it was probably a negative experience of the wildlife. Yeah. Um, there has been a few people that have shark attacks. Not mm. actually like they've bitten them, but it like starts Hitting banging the boat. boat. Yeah. Um, and then they see, yeah, sea turtles, Flying fish jumping aboard. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. So you can lots of flying fish coming aboard. So I think in some ways it's luck of the draw. Mm. As to whether I have this this idea of I can have this amazing whale breach up next to me and obviously go away from me. Mm-hmm. You know, catch that on video. Like but. Tom Hanks in Survivor. Yes. Mm. How will you be recording the journey? Will you keep a diary, a uh, video yes. journal? Or? I'll probably do both. Yeah. Um, do a blog maybe every three days. And then the intention is to take enough video that if, you, if I wanted to, I could make a documentary of, of the footage. So let's get inside your head. Are you comfortable with your own company? Yes, I think so. Have you you described rowing in Canada? Mm-hmm. Did you row as part of a crew or did you row? Uh, row? Both. So I've done solo. I've probably done more solo rowing, which looking back, you're like, mm, I can see how that was preparing me. <laughs> yeah, because I often ended up in a single, even when um, I did two years of rowing um, in person, ended up most of the time actually being in a, in a single on my own. Yeah. But so it's quite f- nice because you can control the boat a bit better. Mm. The physical preparation is probably, in many ways, the easy part. You know, you have mm-hmm. 4,000 plus kilometres to row. How are you preparing mentally? Um, I think going through all the possible things that could go wrong and you know, imagining, you know, you're lying in the boat and suddenly there's a wave and it breaches the door. It's like, okay, what are you doing in that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, probably thinking worst case scenarios and thinking, okay, what would I actually do in that? In that circumstance, um, in terms of just keep going, um, not from a physical point of view, but I've done some some study and some work where that was the, in essence, the essential piece was yep. just keep yep. going. You hate this. I know you hate this, but you just have to finish it and keep going. Um, so the self-motivation of I really don't want to do this anymore, and it's like, well, just do maybe you know, an extra 10 minutes and then add an extra 10 minutes yeah. off of that. Uh, I've done quite a lot of, I guess, practice and mental coaching with myself of how to ex- extend and extend and do that. Um, so the next, next chapter of Harry Potter and, and to using those Something sort of like things. that. Yeah. Or like, okay, you're allowed to have um, a granola bar in half an hour. Yeah. Like, oh, you're almost there. And then you're like, oh, okay, we'll keep going even after that. So that aspect of it, I've had practice doing it and but also being kind to yourself mm-hmm. of knowing when you've gone too you don't want to go too far because if you push it then you're gonna 
hit a slump and that's actually going to be a lot harder to pull out of. So knowing when it's actually probably too much, it's taking re- a break and then coming back into it. It's really interesting when we talk to people who are doing these incredible feats that are, are mind-blowing to us us lay mortals, but that ability to break it down into little steps. Like we had a, a um, channel swimmer, Sam Penny, who spoke about just counting to 10 strokes. Um, Sabine Bird, a, a world record cyclist who would, would just sort of pedal and concentrate on that, that movement. It, it seems like a very powerful technique, being able to break down into small, achievable goals, mm-hmm. chapter of Harry Potter, half an hour for a granola bar, and then reward yourself, be kind to yourself and not push yourself to where you're failing and get into that mental slump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's probably the danger of what you could do. You could see it as something that you try and get through, but because, or sort of, you know, you need to keep pushing mm. to do it, but it's too long to push quickly. Like There's, there's definitely going to be points where you're going to have to. So, you know, say you run into a shipping lane by off chance you get blown into one, that's when you just sprint. You, you sprint and you keep going and you have to just, you know, be on deck rowing potentially 24 hours if you have to be dodging mm-hmm. things um, and then take a rest and, and get back into it. But I don't think there's any point in, in running yourself into the ground. We spoke um, before the, the interview about a mutual friend of Tim and mine who had done a, a pairs crossing of the Atlantic. And he reflected that there was a period of 48 hours where they were rowing around the clock and went backwards in terms of their journey. I, I imagine those sort of things, it would be very hard to maintain that focus and, and keep the the, yeah. the positivity. Yeah, yeah I, I might just put out the sea anchor. <laughs> <laughs> Have you or will you practice any mindfulness? What? Sorry? Meditation? Um, breathing? Mindfulness? Oh, mindfulness. I, I thought you said something else. Um Potentially. I'm a Christian, so I'll probably actually end up more just praying, actually. Mm -hmm. I've got lots of time to talk to God. (laughs) (laughs) And it will probably be just you and God out there. That's pretty much the reason I'm able to get in that boat. I think that's um, one thing that um, could be underestimated or not necessarily understood is is how much my faith plays into the willingness to to attempt this and attempt it on my own. Yeah. I know I'm getting in the boat with God (laughs) and yeah, being carried through that. And I don't know what's going to happen, but he does. So it's a a trust factor in that. So yeah, that's, that's probably the critical mental part Mm. for me of how I'm getting through that. And you can expect there to be some profound spirituality on top of that, both Mm. you, the weather, mother nature, seas and animals and yeah, pretty incredible opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That sits inside that challenge. It sounds expensive. Uh, how, yes, it how is. do you fund it? Um, I've had some very generous people. So someone has loaned me the money to get the boat. Mm-hmm. And that was the critical breaker make it. So once I You kind of need a boat to do this. Yeah. 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 Once I had the, the funds for that. Well, the, I think the part of the reason um, the original teammate pulled out was just that massive how on earth are we going to find enough money mm-hmm. to, to get that. Um, so coming around the second time is knowing I had a starting point if I could actually have a boat mm. and then from there build up. Um, so I've done um, fundraising, sort of crowdfunding, mm-hmm. um, and then I've had a few um, smaller businesses come on board as well. Getting corporate sponsorship is just a mission. Yeah. You read through their criteria and you're like, I don't know who you give money to because <laughs> yeah. it's just eliminated. So I think people have an idea that it's um, quite simple until they start trying to do mm-hmm. it. Or you talk to people, oh, you could write to these people, they'll get behind you like so <laughs> maybe in spirit, but not in actual practice. This is a silly question, but in terms of the boat, I assume there are 
sort of Ferrari level boats and you know yeah. entry level boats or, or well there, there probably are more not necessarily structurally but perhaps from technology point of view okay. or if they built them themselves they had a custom design mm-hmm. um, there's two main types of boats that you could have and then there's you know variants within that. Um, the boat that I have is built by a guy in the UK, Justin Atkins, and his boats are known for being very solid and you know capsized. Kind of seaworthy. Mm. Very seaworthy. Yes. Ignorant Good. question, but what's he make them out of? Uh, so it's uh, fiberglass um, and the marine plywood is the main components. So do it's you, very light. Do you have repair stuff on board? Can you I have, plug a hole? Yeah. Yeah, I would have repair stuff on board. How's your fiberglassing? Um, it's not very good. <laughs> so that's one thing I need to do. I'm just hoping I don't have like massive um, breaches. Mm. I think if I'm getting to the whole massive hole breach, depending yeah. on the size of it, you might be getting the life yep. raft. But oh, otherwise, the, the set phone. Yep. And you have a life raft. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have all the safety equipment that you would have. So life raft, um, flares. This stuff is in there. Eperb. Eperb. Personal mm-hmm. eperb. Little tiny one you carry with you. Mm-hmm. Um. I can't think of what else you have. All the safety equipment you're supposed to have. Yes, of course. Yeah, mm. yeah those Mandated. <laughs> we often include in these um, uh, discussions sort of references to uh, poetry. Obviously, we draw our title and our inspiration from some old poetry, mm. but we often talk with our guests about any books or poetry or prose, movies even, songs that inspire them. Is there anything that, that sort of uh, you draw inspiration from? Harry Potter audio books. Oh, they're not so much inspiration. <laughs> Time passing. Yeah. Um, I would say probably um, Psalms in the Bible mm-hmm. are probably like the the key inspiration of certain passages and other and other books within in the Bible would be the the ones that would keep me keep me going. I'm not much of a poetry person. I'll admit, sorry. Um, That's all right. <laughs> we in fact we've got the episode for you, Chris Hewitt. Mm-hmm. Often talks about people. I didn't know I liked poetry until I saw your stuff. So yeah, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think maybe it was in high school where you have to analyze poems, <laughs> and you kind of get over <laughs> and it. Exactly, being like, yeah. I think we're reading a bit more into it. What the author says because there was a poem I did write, and then my teacher came back. She was like, "I was very concerned about <laughs> your poem," and she thought it was like this dark, horrible thing. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, how did you possibly <laughs> no, no, read that?" That was a feel-good poem. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I was just like, it just, but she took it as being like this very dark, serious poem. Just, and I was like, that's more oh, on God. you, teacher. Yeah, you know, if, if yeah, you're reading that. that <laughs> so you're kind of like, oh, I really think we're reading more into it than people are writing. Mm, that's funny. Um, so, yeah, I've never taken to it. Another thing we often do mm-hmm. when chatting with our guests is a section we call quick questions, quick answers. All right. Full disclosure. The questions are often quick. The answers really are. But yes. <laughs> Ben's tangents generally draw this section out much longer than it should be. If you could only listen to one song and one song only for the entirety of the row and you had to listen to it, what would it be? Uh, yeah, I, they're not quick answers, are they? <laughs> I don't have a favourite song. Maybe uh, what's the I Will Survive, perhaps. I Will oh, Survive. Glory again. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Not right, 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 right. No, I think no, that would just be depressing. That, that would be, yeah, insanity. Um, yeah. What are you going to miss the most when you're out there in the middle of the ocean? I think probably a shower, you know, realistically. Does Being the boat clean. have a name? It does. It's a wave dancer. Wave dancer. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. How do you define happiness? Mm. 
define happiness. Yeah, they're not quick answers, are they? No. No. Uh, how do I define happiness? I think there's probably like various things. You have happiness, joy, contentment. Mm. I wouldn't say they're all mm. the same. Mm. Yeah. I think the trip will be joyful moments. I'll be happy 40% of the time, if that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, content, I'd like to think for more of it than that. Um, yeah, I think happiness is probably more emotional and can be more influenced by circumstances. Yeah. like it. What's your greatest achievement to date? Mm. I can give you a hint. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> I'd like to know what you well, well, there has to be an academic. Uh, I don't reckon that's a great achievement. I think finishing it might be. But even then. So for our listeners, Heather has a PhD. Yeah. But that, that there is actually my mental endurance. As an engineer, I ended up doing a sociology PhD, which I did engineering to avoid writing essays. <laughs> um, so it's one of those things, circumstances you end up in, and you go, how on earth did I get here? I just need to get out. We're sensing a pattern. You like to, to challenge yourself, do yes. things the hard way. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. Will, Rain, will Rain check the achievements question? I think so. I have to think about that a bit more. Because I, I wouldn't say that's my greatest achievement, mm -hmm. to be honest. Yeah. What do you think about that. What are you most scared of on this trip? What's keeping you awake at night? I guess like a big storm would be the fear factor, mm -hmm. but then an underlying one would be, what if I've underestimated something and it's going to come back and get me? Like I'm not actually physically fit enough and I get out there and I can't do more than two weeks and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. I think probably having to call for help would be probably the realistically the biggest fear. You've got yeah. the, you know, the storm side of it, but... Yeah, having to. Hmm. Apart from a megalodon. Yeah. 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 Be having to call help and get rescued. Favorite footwear? Um, I'm going to go Kiwi on you, Jandals. But, mm, uh, jandals. <laughs> What's the best word for? <laughs> it's a great Jandals word. are in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm out. You're out. You out go. of questions. I've only got one more. When you finally arrive in Hawaii, what's the first thing you will do? After stepping ashore, of course. Uh, my parents are intending on coming, so probably giving them a hug. Mm. Um, and then maybe, you know, surviving for half an hour and then laying down. <laughs> <laughs> in a real bed. Yes, in it's a real bed. Having a real shower. And having a shower. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A real shower, getting the salt off. How do, how do people find out? More about you and the row, Heather. Um, so you can go to the website's probably the big, the key spot. So it's Pacific Giants Row, Giants with an S, um, dot com. And that's how you can find out um, if you wanted to become a sponsor, um, doing it that way. And then also the fundraising goal. So the big background of why I'm doing it is to fundraise money for uh, overseas development. So mm -hmm. Everyone can do something about the injustice that they see. And that's probably where I think my heart um, really lies as much as I'm doing the rowing. I'm doing it because of it's a way that is people take notice mm. and they're like, why on earth are you doing this? Yeah. Um, so I have a very ambitious uh, fundraising goal of $250,000. Mm. So partnering with two different organizations in Australia, it's um, Tier Australia. Um, and they partner with local NGOs and mostly in Asia and Africa, doing community development work and largely village development groups, so bringing people together and facilitating um, with them of how they can work within their village and 
um, teaching them agricultural techniques, um, working with schools, water sanitation type projects. And then in Canada, the UK and the US, um, it's an organization called Emmanuel International who does um, similar work. Awesome. And mm-hmm. in addition to donations through the website, I understand there's sponsorship opportunities available? Yes. Yeah. Um, so you can get your name on the boat as an individual organization for uh, 250 um, and then if you're wanting to get um, company logo, um, there's different scales, bronze, um, silver, and gold. And if you really want to have the whole thing named after you, um, that's um, the, I think we call it platinum sponsorship. Mm. Mm. And all of those, of course, on the, the website, which yes. we'll link to in our socials and our episode notes. Mm. Do we get a logo on the boat? Did we cough up enough? You we did. Definitely, we did. <laughs> <laughs> we met the threshold. We met the threshold for <laughs> yes. logo. We would yeah. love to get a picture of that and yes. um, put, it, put it on yeah. our socials. Can we take it for a row? Yes, you can actually. Yes, you're welcome to come Let's out do for that. <laughs> we do not want to write it off before you. <laughs> I don't think you could write it off unless you like smash it. Into oh, rocks. that sounds like a challenge, Heather. Yeah. Actually, the real challenge for us, considering that it is configured for two rowers, is who gets to steer, Ben yes. or I, or the wind. That, that's going to be a <laughs> raging argument. That I'll steer, you can row. <laughs> That's pretty much the way this partnership <laughs> yeah. works. I, I give the guidance, you do the heavy lifting, the, the dumb lug work. Well, Heather, we wish you all the best in what is an incredible challenge Thank in you. front of you. Uh, we look forward to being part of it in some small way. Great. Thanks very much. We are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.